Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Trying to save the world one show at a time. It's episode 247 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and one thing that we try to save you from is missing some really good new shows. So as a matter of fact, we're going to be talking about The Passage from Fox. Of course, the premiere coming up on January the 14th. That's Monday, and we have Mark Paul Gosler on the show to talk about it and, you know, how different is it from the book. We'll ask him about that and ask him about his character, Brad, and a ton more, and the ultimate question from the show, but I will save that for a little bit later on. And of course, going to be talking about a whole bunch of nerd news this week, but there's some really exciting new comics out as well. Our review of Young Justice number one from Wonder Comics and Brian Michael Bendis is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer C.S. Pacat, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Drag out that long box. You got the tablet or the laptop fired up because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And as promised, it's Young Justice number one from Wonder Comics, the new imprint from DC Comics, of course, written by Brian Michael Bendis. Patrick Gleason on the art, Alejandra Sanchez on the colors, and DC lettering doing the letters. Now, I got to tell you. I mean, fun seems to be synonymous with Brian Michael Bendis, especially since he was joining DC. And there's certainly some familiar characters in this book and some characters that are new by their own admission, actually. And I got to tell you, one interesting thing that they mentioned in this book was is that Earth's already been through seven crisis events. That's kind of good to know. I mean, if you want to go back and count, maybe that adds up. Maybe it doesn't. So maybe there's still something coming that we have no idea about. I mean, are we counting heroes in crisis in that too? What's the deal? So maybe we need to dive more into that a little later day. But this also has the effect on the people of Gemworld, and they've come to Earth to kind of confront Earth's champion. And I'll I'll let, you know, this is spoiler-free, so I'll I'll save that for you for when you actually read the book to find out who that is. You probably won't be surprised. Now, instead, they kind of find the Young Justice team. I use the team term team very, very loosely here because that's not really what's going on. So that's kind of where the fun really begins, though. And you get to see each character get their moment and kind of enter into the book. Really loved Impulse slash Kid Flash, if you want to call it, Bart Allen. Basically, that's who we're talking about. Hilarious, as always, especially when it's he and Tim... Tim Drake interacting, which we got very little of in this book. I can't wait to see more of that because that was just money when it was on the page. Also, really, really liked Ginny Hex. And I didn't know how I would feel about the character or how that would come across. But what she kind of adds to the dynamic, she's got a lot of edge. A lot of edge. And I like that something you don't really expect in a book like this, especially... You know, when you're talking about young justice, and it is, it's certainly, the book's certainly kid friendly, I would, I would say, but, you know, she certainly definitely got a little bit of an edge to her, and I love that. Now, the battle that the team is going through kind of leads them to yet another film familiar couple of characters as the battle goes on with the people of the gem world. Now, here's the cool thing, though, is we don't really know how the team got where they were, 
if they're all together or what's going on. So that's kind of really, really, a really, really neat question that I think is going to need to be answered coming up. But I mean, this really was kind of a great reintroduction to Young Justice. It's a different team than you're seeing in the Young Justice Outsiders animated series right now. I love that. Just kind of show a little bit of a variety of what DC can do. And really, it's a good jumping on point for new readers. I mean, even if you're a diehard fan, I think you're going to love this. But if you're not, I think you're going to love this book no matter what because it's just a blast. And the dynamic of each character as they come in, there's no character that you see where you really go, eh, you know, I don't really know who that is. Or, eh, you know, I could really do without that character. Even if you don't know who some of these characters are, and that's okay, you kind of feel like you want to know more about them, especially once you see who Robin is confronted by at the end of the book. I know that this character's on a variant cover, but I'm not going to spoil it just in case you haven't seen the variant cover. So even without a legitimate villain, actually, in their early going in this book, because, you know, it's hard to take the Gem World folks seriously after just one issue. But, I mean, I was very drawn in by the story, and I wanted to know where this was going, what happened next. And partially, I think that was just, it was, I was just having fun reading the book, and the art is just as good. I mean, the art was really fantastic and so vibrant, and there were so many times where there was so much that was popping on a single page because there was a ton going on in this issue. It was the, the whole middle of the book is kind of like pedal to the metal, so I loved that, and the vibe of the whole thing was just really, really great. You could tell that Bendis really poured his heart and soul into this one. It seems like when Brian Michael Bendis is writing something you could tell he truly loves, that that notch goes up just a little bit. Not that he doesn't love every every character that he's written for in the past, but it just seems like he's got a little something extra for certain books and certain characters, and I think we find that in Young Justice. This is definitely a pull for me. Wonder Comics certainly off to a very, very good start. Dynamite Entertainment brings back Turok once again with Turok number one. The 2019 version, written by Ron Mars, who you're familiar with from the show. Roberto Castro on the art. Salvatore Ayala on the colors. And in Different World Studios, Troy Pitieri on the letters. Now, I can tell you that this book is set in Colorado in 1873. And now, Turok's brother has, has been captured by what appear to be soldiers. And he's trying to, and Turok's trying to rescue him. Now, the first issue really is about that rescue attempt, how that goes, and that's really in, and that's until they come across something that's very strange towards the end of the book. I mean, this is a Turok story. You could probably figure out what I'm talking about, but again, spoiler free, I'm not going to tell you. But, I mean, it seems almost ridiculous for me not to tell you. You should be able to figure it out if you're a Turok fan. If you're not, then it'll be a big surprise for you. Now, I mean... It, this book definitely feels like a reboot, and it certainly serves as a good jumping-on point for new readers. I don't hate that this feels like a re- reboot either, by the way. It, d- it doesn't bother me. Uh, you, we really don't get a whole lot in the way of backstory on Turok, other than he's very well-known, and he's very feared, and he's a fierce warrior. It, it's very much a Conan the Barbarian type of feel that you get as far as his reputation is concerned with everybody else. Now, there's a lot of action in this book, and things are very, very quick-moving, and you hate the soldiers that are looking for Turok and his brother. There's no likability there at all. 
you know, it was very entertaining, but the action itself is really, I don't think, going to be enough to sustain the story going forward. So I'm really hoping in the next issue, the next couple of issues, we kind of dive into more than just the introduction of Turok's world and we get a little bit more into what the story is going to be, at least in the short term, going forward. Because I think, I'm not saying that it's not interesting, this, the story of Turok itself, and it's certainly been around for a while, but I feel like I need something a little bit newer, a little bit fresh, and hopefully we get that in the next couple of issues. And I I trust Ron Mars, so I know that something is coming. I'm sure it's going to be the next issue, and I can't wait to see what it is. I'm going to give this a pickup for now, though. I'm not ready to add this to the pull box just yet. But again, this is one of those that could certainly change once I read the next issue or two if I get a good solid story because the art was on point. The art was really, really good by Roberto Castro and company. Very, very detailed stuff. So I'm certainly not mad at any aspect of this book. I just need to see just a little bit more. That's going to do for what we're reading up next. It's still mid-season time, so we'll dive into more mid-season TV next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is J.R. Ramirez from NBC's Manifest, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy. Time to hop back aboard Flight 828 and talk about the Manifest premiere, mid-season premiere anyway. And I just got to say, first of all, before I even get into spoilers for this episode, and there's going to be a ton, so there's your spoiler warning right there. To the manifest writers, the 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 whole you know the podcast that's still a thing. Yeah, the, that that one hurt a little bit, but that's okay. We understand that Ben's been gone for five years. He doesn't understand what's been going on with podcasts and everything, and how we're blowing up all over the place. Just thought I'd throw that out there. But we know you love us, so it's okay. It's it's all right. You, you, all is forgiven, especially after this. I mean, whirlwind of an episode. You want to talk about a show that comes back swinging? Manifest absolutely did that. Of course, you know, you're dealing with the fallout of the passengers that were being experimented on, and the the day was kind of saved there. We got them back, but you lose Vance in the process of the whole thing, and we're trying to find out what's going on with these passengers, and now we've got this whole Connected Minds thing going on, and then we find out right away in this episode that Michaela... Not only is having another calling, even though she hadn't had one in 10 days, they thought it was kind of over with. Now Michaela's callings have visuals along with them, which was really, really interesting. And and it turns out, you know, towards the end of the episode, she might be seeing somebody else's calling. So this whole shared minds thing is really, really starting to come into play. And the interesting thing about this is, is that it's not everybody. Because it's not like Ben is having this same problem. As a matter of fact, he really hasn't had... Any callings per se that I can remember anyway, correct me if I'm wrong on that. So it's just, it's interesting how this is all affecting everybody differently. And that's one of the most intriguing things about this show. As a matter of fact, the, the pa- one of the passengers that Michaela interacts with was in a, that was in the catatonic state actually wakes up when she touches him and they're trying to find out if there's some sort of a connection there. Maybe there were some similarities. Turns out, you know, thought there were, maybe not so much and that, Caused Michaela to blow up a little bit. The guy was abusive to his wife and all these other things. So that was the other thing that I thought was brilliant that the writers did for Manifest. You know, when when you have a moment like this, when you're dealing with people that have, you know, lost their families and, you know, been gone for five years and trying to get their lives back, you throw us a curveball in there of this guy wasn't a good dude. His wife wanted to get away from him. You're trying to figure out what happened to her. Is it part of some conspiracy or something like that? No, it was just that 
the guy beat his wife. She wanted to get away from him. I thought that was a really good curveball there. This show keeps you on your toes. It's one of the reasons that I love Manifest so much. And maybe this is one of those throwaway moments in a season that's full of really, really intriguing stuff. But to me, this is one of those things that I'll go back to at the end of the season as a fan and go, you know what? That was one of those moments where that told me just when I think I've got it figured out, I don't because that's what this show kind of keeps doing to you in a way that I hate to keep drawing the comparisons, but in a way that Lost wasn't able to do on a consistent basis. And I think that this is one thing Manifest, one of the things that Manifest has had over Lost, and I'm sure by the end of the season we won't be making those comparisons anymore because the show just keeps distancing itself from Lost in wonderful, wonderful ways. So I'm not going to be making that comparison again, I don't think. But one thing that really gut punches me, and another difference between the two, is the family connections and the character-driven aspect, which I talked about in my review of the premiere episode, episode one. And that's just Ben's family crisis with his wife Grace and the kids. It's just really hitting a boiling point. I mean, he's out of the house now, and you've got Cal wondering why dad can't come home. You've got Olive wanting Danny back in the picture. And the one and another thing that I loved about this episode was that Grace was Grace finally says what we're all thinking, right? Or at least I'm thinking anyway. I cannot be the only one that feels this is that, you know, no matter what she does, either way, she's the bad guy. And she says that she's tired of it. I don't know if she's reading Twitter or not. But you but you gotta first of all, you feel for Ben. But then you feel for Danny at the same time, and in the middle is Grace, and then every time she makes a decision, you're like, I can't believe she just did that. I can't believe she kicked Ben out of the house. I can't believe she doesn't want Danny back in the house. So yeah, she's damned if she does, damned if she doesn't, not just with her kids, but with us, the viewers, as well. So I like that that was kind of thrown out there and addressed, right? Let's get that out in the open, and it looks like that's something we're going to be dealing with sooner rather than later. It's certainly something that they could have dragged out. They're not going to do that, and I love that fact. We actually have a lot, another character-driven moment, and that's Michaela and Jared having that moment where they kind of, I don't want to say get back together because I don't know if we're there yet, but certainly uh, the passion kind of boiled over with Jared's near-death experience, and he laid it all on the table, said he doesn't want to live a half-life anymore, and it's always been Michaela that he loved. And I think that that was a really nice moment. But then uh, uh, you've got Lourdes, who's, you know, the best friend who married the guy that she was supposed to marry. And that's going to have to be dealt with at some point, right? That can't just go away. And I'm not sure she's going to be too thrilled about the, about them, you know, kind of doing it while they're still married sort of thing. So maybe that makes you think less of Jared and or Michaela as well. So there's a good push and pull with these characters there. And we also have a brand new NSA guy who was upset about Vance dying. It's, I think his name is Powell. And you see him get caught after he helps Ben. Then you've got this podcaster, like I was talking about before, who's like one of those conspiracy theorist podcasters. And Ben's trying to figure out if he can trust him or not and actually maybe use him for information. Then how about the fact that you've got Autumn, who was supposed to be spying for this group that was you know, putting on these experiments, she chucks her phone in the water, and she's like, nah, I don't want to do that anymore. And then they track her down. And that leads me to the major. We actually have a big bad in name now. We know that this female character who's called the major looks like she's responsible for this whole thing, looking for something called the Holy Grail. And it could be a person 
We're thinking right now that it could be Cal, but again, this is one of those times in the show where it's like, okay, it seems obvious, but is it obvious? And But it seems like Cal's connected to everybody's visions, not just his own, right? And he's seeing things that others can't see, so maybe he is, in fact, the Holy Grail. But there's so many questions left to be answered, but we are getting answers to other questions right away. And you're giving me other stuff to think about, like the family drama, other than what's going on with the actual mystery. So one thing that I will give Manifest, now that we're about 10 episodes in here, 11 episodes in, is that you're giving me a lot of reasons to stay interested, not just in the mystery. And that is a tough thing to do. I feel like I'm still interested in all of it. This far into the show, now you've got me hooked. Now you got me locked. And again, I can't, I can't imagine that I'm the only one that feels that way. There's a ton of great performances here. And uh, Melissa Roxburgh, how do, you, how do you say enough about what Melissa Roxburgh has done on the show? Josh Dallas as well. They've just been so amazing. But the entire cast of characters has just been real. I mean, the NSA guys are a little bit over the top sometimes. And even some of the villains are a little, are a little bit, you know, you know, a little bit hokey, a little bit too you know, old school villainy. But I mean, if that's the only criticism of this show and it's a very, very minor one, I don't care. I can kick that to the side. doesn't matter to me. I am all in on everything else manifest and I'm so glad it's back and I can't wait to ride this all the way to the conclusion. That's going to do it for my spoiler filled review of the manifest season one, mid season premiere up next. Let's do another one. We'll talk about the gifted next on the down and nerdy podcast. Hey, this is Kobe Bell from The Gifted on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The war on three fronts may finally be coming to a head. Let's talk about the mid-season premiere of The Gifted from Fox and the fallout. By the way, first of all, tons of spoilers from here on out for The Gifted in the mid all the way up to the mid-season premiere. So if you're not caught up, you might want to fast forward through a little bit and dealing with the fallout. From the last episode where they finally get John back, they rescue him from the purifiers, and and now the mutant underground is kind of in shambles, and we're not sure who's going to be sticking around and who isn't. You've got the fallout from Andy and, and Lorna sort of coming back to help them free John, so everybody's kind of got to deal with that drama again, and it seems like Lorna is the one that's kind of starting to teeter a little bit, and she actually ends up in this episode... I don't want to say turning on the inner circle because I don't, she hasn't completely left yet. She's still in there. And I mean, after having to give up Dawn and everything, just everything that's going through her mind right now and the connection that she made with Marcos in the last episode. I mean, she, once she finds out that Reeve is bringing in a group that's res, that was responsible for a major cruise ship massacre, she feels like she, you know, her emotions are finally coming to a head where she felt like she was doing the right thing by joining the inner circle and that the greater good was really going to be served here. But now she's wondering if, you know, it's all going to be worth it or if it is what she thought it was going to be. And maybe this was her, you know, we kind of see her reconciling with the fact that maybe she's made a huge mistake. And I, and I know Andy tried to bring that up before, you know, like, are they doing the right thing? Are they staying, are they in the right place. And I think she's starting to wonder if maybe she's not or where that right place might be. And you see her break down with Marcos and she's sad about how things have sort of unraveled. And I think she sort of wants back what, what they had before, even though it was difficult. 
I think she kind of wants that back. So she wants their help in stopping Reva from doing something absolutely terrible. And we still don't know exactly what that is yet. But every time the inner circle has set their sights on a target, it's been big. I mean, they got all the collars turned off and all of those mutants were able to escape. So who knows what they have planned. But I want to jump to Jace Turner for a second. It's been a very interesting season for Kobe Bell. But I got to tell you, they go to question these mutants at a homeless shelter. I think it was a homeless shelter for, for mutants. And they try, they're trying to get information on what's going on with, with the with the inner circle and the mutant underground and, and things like that. And uh, you've got the purifiers. They sh- One of the kids ends up getting shot. And, and Jace has a real moment again of, man, am I, am I in the right place? Am I with the right people? And when he has a chance to turn his guy in, his right-hand man with the purifiers, he has a chance to turn him in for shooting this kid in what seemed like Cold blood. Again, we weren't in the room, but it pretty much seems like that's what happened. And and Jace lies to the cops and says, yeah, the guy was coming at him. So he had to shoot him. He had to put him down. He was trying to use his powers on him. And I was just like, man. And then he gets a call from his wife. And man, I got to tell you, ah, we've had Kobe Bell on the show. And I love Kobe Bell. This has got to be a difficult time, difficult time for him because Jace Turner really going through some stuff. And I think he's at, he's at a point of no return. So if you had any sympathy left for Jace Turner before this episode, not sure you've got any left now. It's I don't know how Jace comes back from this. I really hope that there's a redemption moment for him somewhere. But, oh, man, th- this one's going to be tough. So now we've got the war on three fronts, right? Because it looks like Marcos is going to help Lorna stop Riva and with this inside information and then you've got what's going on with Blink and the Morlocks and trying to use them for help for information to try and find out what the inner circle has planned and it just it certainly seems like she's teetering there as well does she want to be with John or does she want to be with the Morlocks I think she's trying to make that decision without actually really talking to anybody about it right I mean we see her talk to somebody about it but it seems like she's you know, really kind of torn. But the major thing to me that happens in this episode, well, a couple of things. Let's talk about Lauren first. Because, you know, we've got that music box that they were given before they escaped that lab. And now Lauren's kind of entranced by the whole thing, right? We see you have a dream, which kind of awakens a new power in her. And this thing is, I mean, we see her almost get caught by the cops. Looks like the landlord called the cops trying to get them out of there. And, oh, man, it looks, she's starting to turn evil a little bit. And, and to me, I'm sitting there like, no, no, not Lauren. Not, she, she's the sweet, innocent one. She's the one that, she's the one that's the hope, right? She's the hope of the group. And if she turns and she starts to become a little bit more evil, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. Like, we, we've seen Andy kind of pass, not really past that point of no return, right? But he's right there for going it's hard to say full on evil because there's there's still good there. And I'm not talking like Darth Vader evil and there's still good there. We're not quite at that level yet. But he certainly seems like, you know, he's starting to cross that line. And so if we start to see Lauren cross that line, even if it is in defense of her family, that was some nasty stuff that she did, right? Could have been a lot worse, sure. But it seems like things are starting to tilt and this music box seems to have 
a lot to do with it. And she's having these dreams about the Von Strucker twins. Now it's, I, I don't know. This is making me feel a little uncomfortable. I know that's how I'm supposed to feel. I mean, the writers are doing a good job. Feeling a little uncomfortable about this one, though. Got to be honest. But it looks like, you know, John gets the call. We get John finally wakes up, gets the call saying there's going to be a meeting in the underground, underground and we're going to do this. The war, we're going to start bringing the war to the inner circle and to the purifiers, quite frankly. So it looks like things are really going to ramp up. And then we see Reva meeting with the guy from the Ryan report, right? We get to see that little bit of information. I kind of saw that coming, though. I sort of felt like there was a possibility that that could happen. I actually wouldn't be surprised if the guy from from the Ryan report is a mutant himself. I'm not sure that that's where they're going to go, but it seems like everybody's working the angle. It feels like Reva's working the angle of the purifiers to kind of get everything stirred up, to get people to want to be on her side, right? She needs that propaganda for people to want to join her war and create the sanctuary for mutants, right? Without humans, clearly without the people that have hurt mutants in the past, but I think she's going to take it that step further and just try to annihilate the human race altogether. Just like it seems like the purifiers want to annihilate the mutants. And then you've got the mutant underground who just wants everybody to live in harmony. So you've got your place. Everybody's got their place where they can go. So it's going to be very interesting if in the next episode, that next step is taken and this war is really pushed to the forefront and it could be just peddled to the floor all the way to the end of the season. And it's just going to be interesting to see where the dominoes fall. I mean, will, will Lauren start to show some cracks in the armor there? Or does she harness this new ener- newfound energy that she's gotten and take it in a positive direction? Or does she fall off the map there? Or we, do we see Lorna officially leave the inner circle now? And is that going to put Dawn in jeopardy? And we saw her aunt. i got to tell you, if the aunt dies, I'm going to be really upset. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling the writers right now. If the aunt ends up dying, I'm going to be really upset. And you know, it just feels like it's going to be one of those things where they're going to find where she's going to leave the the inner circle. They're going to find Dawn, and the the aunt's going to end up being collateral damage in this. But Dawn's going to get away safely. I'm just going to be really upset if the aunt dies because I already felt for the aunt already, and I really hope this isn't an Uncle Ben type situation where she goes down. So. I got to tell you, I was wavering a little bit on The Gifted throughout this this first part of this second season just because of the fracture dynamic. And I dealt with that those feelings with Arrow as well when they when we had the inner fightings with the team and I and they sort of brought that home at the end of that season of Arrow, but for this it's one of those things where it was just really uncomfortable because I they've built such a bond and I fell in love with the bond of these characters and when that was torn away and now they're kind of fighting with each other it made me feel a little bit uneasy, but again, that's the point. I'm supposed to feel that way, and as as viewers, we're supposed to feel that way. So if that does end up coming back together, we can really celebrate that moment, and I really, really hope that it happens by the end of this season on The Gifted. But I'm really interested to see where some of the revelations in this episode are going to be going in the next one. That's going to do it for this week in Geek Tam and another double review. Up next, yes, we still have some nerd news to tend to, so let's do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jason Lyles from Rampage the Movie, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like we have plenty of beaming to look forward to. It's time for nerd news. I say that because there's a ton 
of Star Trek news. So let's get to it, starting with something that's not going to be beamed up anymore. According to Deadline, the fourth installment in the Star Trek movie series is now shelved indefinitely. Now, S.J. Clarkson was supposed to be directing it, but now she's going to be working on something else. We'll talk about that here in just a second. I mean, Chris Pine was already out, and it said that was due to budgetary reasons, and if there was not going to be a whole lot of a budget, I mean, you can do Star Trek on a smaller budget. I'm not saying that you can't, but, you know, it seems like slowly but surely they were kind of cutting things down with these Star Trek movies. And then they were talking about possibly bringing Chris Hemsworth back and doing a whole time travel thing. And it just didn't seem like the right ideas were on the table for this. So I don't see any problem in just letting this go by the wayside. I'm not even sure you need to reboot the movie franchise at this point, if this even needs to be done. And the reason I say that as we move on to the next story quickly here is that the Hollywood Reporter is reporting that a second... Star Trek animated series is going to be coming to CBS All Access and more short treks are going to be coming as well. Now, talking to Alex Kurtzman, says there's going to be at least two animated series. It also looks like we're going to be talking about a bunch of other stuff. We already know that Lower Decks is going to be one of those animated series. Some of the new short treks are going to be animated as well. They'll premiere in the spring after Discovery wraps its second season. Now, They've kind of said, and I want to paraphrase this. I don't want to read the quote exactly. So they want to tell self-contained stories that are also connected to a larger picture. I'm not sure if that's a contradiction because I don't know how you can be self-contained, but at the same time connected to the larger picture. Maybe that short set it on my part. I think what they mean there is that let's take some of these characters and dive deeper into what they're all about or what, what they've got going on while this larger thing is going on. And that's why I didn't want to read the quote exactly, because that's how I'm interpreting this, because otherwise I'm not sure that it makes a whole lot of sense. If you want to dive deeper into characters' relationships or a certain character themselves by doing this, then I think this is a good idea, because obviously if the character's already in the larger world, then they are part of the larger picture. So that's kind of how I'm interpreting it. But they also want to explore different perspectives. And I think that's what saves them here, because let's face it, there's a ton of stuff coming from Star Trek and CBS. You've got the the show with coming up with Patrick Stewart and Jean-Luc Picard making his return. You've got Lower Decks. You've got the Short Treks. You've also got Discovery. And they say that there's all these spin-off series that are coming and all this stuff. Okay, so you're wondering, oversaturation's got to be a problem with this, right? I mean, if that's the argument with Star Wars and Disney, then you've got to worry about the same thing with Star Trek and what's going on at CBS. Well, not necessarily, because, I mean... If they really are going to try and explore different perspectives, that might, and I stress that, might save them. Because, I mean, you. but you also have to, in doing that, you can't alienate the Star Trek fan base that you've already built. So that's going to be difficult because Star Trek fans are very, very beholden to tradition and how they view whatever generation of Star Trek that they grew up loving. So that's something that you've got to be very, very mindful of. You can do different things and even draw new fans in with those different things because think about it. You obviously had to draw new fans in with Next Generation that didn't necessarily watch the original Star Trek series in its first run, right? So you, you at any point, you had to draw in new Star Trek fans 
to be able to do that. And, and there's been several Star Trek series that maybe is your favorite that wasn't somebody else's favorite, but that's what made you fall in love with the franchise. You have to have new and different things. And I think that they can do that. I even think that they can make the whole comedy thing work, and that's clearly something that they want to do. But what they have to be careful of is that in doing that, also having something available for the diehards and the traditional Star Trek fans that will satisfy what they want. So as long as you're giving somebody a little bit of everything and giving and, and satisfying as much as possible, and clearly they're able to do that because it seems like CBS All Access is turning into Star Trek TV at this point. If you're giving everybody what they want, I think that that's all that really matters. And hopefully the oversaturation thing is not a problem and those different perspectives end up being good ones. Because as long as you're telling good stories, I think that it can survive no matter what. But speaking of S.J. Clarkson, apparently has now signed on to direct the Game of Thrones prequel series according to Deadline. Now, this is still going to be taking place thousands of years before the events of Game of Thrones. Yes, Naomi Watts and Josh Whitehouse are still involved in the whole thing. And basically, this is a story that we've already told on a previous show, so I would go back and listen to that previous show for those details. I certainly don't want to rehash all of them here. But at the same time, what you're seeing is in this update is is we're getting a lot of, let's say, lesser known actors and actresses that are now a part of this. So here's the deal. I mean, a few of the names that kind of pop up on this are Naomi Aki. Of course, we're going to be seeing Naomi in Star Wars coming up. We have got Denise Go. We've got Ivano Jeremiah and a whole bunch more. And and if what you're and what you're saying is so with this news of S.J. Clarkson being added as executive producer, not director of the Game of Thrones prequel series, and seeing all of these lesser-known actors and actresses being added as series regulars. And if if what you're saying is, okay, uh, I don't know who any of these people are, or I don't know who some of these people are, you have to realize that there are certain brands where star power doesn't matter as much. And certainly Naomi Watts is going to give you some star power there, but not a ton of it. And Game of Thrones has built up such a brand for themselves that they can take these chances on up-and-coming and and lesser-known talent because people are going to watch for the brand, not necessarily for the talent. And then the talent becomes a brand by being in Game of Thrones and becomes huge. Now, there there are names like Naomi Aki could certainly make a name for herself in Star Wars, and there would certainly be... Maybe this is HBO reading the tea leaves a little bit. And, you know, being able to, to... see talent before a lot of other people do is an important part of what makes networks like HBO successful. I mean, certainly people didn't know everybody that was in the original Game of Thrones series, but they certainly did. How many people knew who Amelia Clark was before Game of Thrones, right? Think about that for a second. And so many of the other actors and actresses that were on Game of Thrones, I mean, of course you knew who Sean Bean was, and some of the others, but not necessarily household names, and some of them are now because of Game of Thrones. So you kind of understand that Game of Thrones has that power to be able to create stars or see that talent and take chances on that, and it's not as big of a deal because it's Game of Thrones and people are going to watch. And again, story is key here. The story still has to be good and still has to be interesting because at some point that name recognition runs out, if the story's no good, we've seen this happen to many a franchise 
in the past. I mean, look at Transformers movies as a perfect example. Look at how long they lived off of the name Transformers, and now you've got Bumblebee who couldn't make as much money as it really should have, even because it was the best Transformers movie in a long time. But it didn't matter because they, you know, the the brand was soured. So, but if you've got a good brand here, you're at least going to succeed in the short term. And and you got to have good faith in this adaptation so far, don't you? And and everybody behind the scenes and adding S. J. Clarkson, just another example of that. I think that they're going to be all right. But I'm I'm still and I'm still really hyped for this. I can't wait to see what they're going to be doing with this prequel series. Here's some news that at least Bungie employees anyway are super, super psyched about. And that is that Bungie, the developer behind Destiny, is splitting with Activision now. I'm going to give Kotaku credit for the story here, even though it was a blog post from Bungie, because I'm going to talk about some things that they put in their article from from information they collected. Now, Bungie is taking full control of Destiny. Apparently, according to what Kotaku has said and what they, who they've talked to, the employees are thrilled about this can't wait apparently things were a little bit tense behind the scenes between the two now this means that Bungie won't also won't be required to release something new every fall or every year like the deal with Activision so they're actually going to be able to take their time how about that in the video game world taking your time and trying to decide what you want to do before you do it not rushing because you know you've got to put something out Every year, and I'm not saying what they put out for Destiny is bad, or for even Destiny 2. What I'm saying is, is that now you've got the opportunity to do things on your own terms, and sometimes that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Now they have promised there will be some surprises. There is going to be new, some new content at some point, but they're not really being specific about there. And it's kind of too early for specifics, isn't it? I'm sure that they've got ideas, but you don't want to put anything out there and then have to pull it back because, again, look how that's worked out. In the video game world, that, that fan, when you bring something up in video games, fans expect it immediately. They want it now. So if you bring something up, you know you're not going to be able to do for another year, two years, whatever. Keep it in your back pocket until you're ready to let people know exactly when it's coming out. So clearly, Bungie's doing the smart thing here. This is nothing new for them. You might remember actually that Bungie negotiated their way out of Microsoft in 2007 when Microsoft bought them. Of course, they were behind Halo. And everything that went on with that. And they ended up getting out of the deal with Microsoft. And they survived that, obviously. 10 years, 12 years later here, they're fine. Now, did they sense that Activision is kind of going downhill a little bit? You see how things aren't exactly going great with Blizzard. You see a lot of the Hearthstone team leaving, starting their own company. There's got to be a reason for that. And, of course, we talked about last week that their deal with Marvel. So, is this a slowly sinking ship? At Activision, I think that that's something that you've got to be legitimately worried about. And if Bungie sensed that and was able to get out, good for them. Because that, I mean, I think that having control of your own content is hugely important. I think that that can only benefit fans. I'm going to talk about this because I'm actually really excited about it. And I hope that it's true and that it happens. I'm not exactly sure. So I normally wouldn't comment on something that's that's not, you know, doesn't have a... a, a I don't want to say reliable source, but doesn't have a a trust a usual trusted source. Let's say that. And Revenge of the Fans is reporting that a Mortal Kombat animated movie is going to be coming from Warner Brothers Animation. And again, no offense to anybody at Revenge of the Fans. This could end up being 100% true, but it's not like, you know, 
we hear stuff coming from them as far as exclusives every day, like we say, like say the Hollywood Reporter or Deadline, and that's no disrespect to them, but you know, you got to keep your caution caution bulb lit a little bit here. They're also reporting that Joel McHale and Jennifer Carpenter are already on board for this animation project. Now, if that's if that is true, you got to think that's Johnny Cage. And Sonya, right there, don't you? That's my assumption anyway. Again, I, I have no facts to back this up. That's just what I'm thinking. Now, remember, we do have Mortal Kombat 11 that's supposed to be coming out in April. We do, we were supposed to have the live-action reboot that had James Wan, but he stepped away. So, does this now mean that they've decided, well, you know, if we can't get James Wan, let's forget about it. Let's do an adult animation. You see what happens with something like Castlevania on Netflix and how well that is done, and how well actually Warner Brothers Animation has done with their, you know, R-rated DC animated films, and their DC adult animation for DC Comics has done really, really well. So why not do that for Mortal Kombat? Because you're releasing so many restrictions that you would have in live action. Not only you save a little bit of money, as a matter of fact. I mean, it still costs some money to do an animated adaptation, but at the same time, there's so much more freedom that you have in animation for something like this. I mean, there's no confirmation of any of these reports. You've got to figure this is adult animation and not the made-for-kids animation that tried years ago that just didn't really work out. There are so many different stories you could tell here. You could actually start a nice franchise for animated movies for Mortal Kombat if you really wanted to. If you really wanted to... You could even release it in the theaters. They certainly did that with Teen Titans Go to the Movies. You saw what Sony just did with Into the Spider-Verse. And now I'm not going to compare Spider-Man to Mortal Kombat at all. Mortal Kombat certainly has a good name brand for themselves. But they've got no credibility when it comes to movies right now. So here's the thing. Can you do this in the theaters? I think you got to go video on demand. And I think you got to go the, the direct-to-home release route, at least for now. And I, I think it's underestimated how big that could be. I don't think you discount that. I think that if you can build a good brand like they have with the DC movies that they've had out, then I think that you can have something here. And again, the world is your oyster as far as this is concerned for what you can do. You don't have to worry about how much this special effect is going to cost. It just seems like this is the right fit. It just seems like visually... A Mortal Kombat animated movie could be so stunning if done correctly. The story could be told in in, in the right way. And it's just going to look, it's going to feel familiar for Mortal Kombat fans. So while I would still love to see a live action movie, I actually give an animated movie a much better chance at being successful and having longe- longevity. So as a Mortal Kombat fan, I think I'd rather have this than a live-action adaptation. Call me crazy, but I actually think this could work out for the best. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to be talking about Fox's brand-new show, The Passage, and we'll chat with Mark Paul Gossler. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is B.B. Wong from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's mid-season premiere time, one of our favorite times of the year, because we get to talk about cool new shows like The Passage on Fox, which is going to be premiering on Monday, January the 14th at 9 p.m., and we actually have Brad himself. It's Mark Paul Gossler. Mark, how's it going, man? I'm doing pretty good, James. Thank you. Now, one of the things that first got my attention about this show, Mark Paul, was the concept of the show itself. What did you think when you first read the script? You know, the script to me, um, when I first read it, was a character-driven drama. 
and then all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, there's this vampire myth genre wrapped around it, which made it really, really cool and really exciting for me because I've, I've never done sort of a genre piece. I'm doing air quotes when I say genre, too. It's really weird because I know we're on, the, we're on a podcast. Right, of course, yeah. We got yeah, you. We heard it. We heard it. It's cool. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I do the air quotes for genre because, again, everything we've done in the past 10 episodes, which is our first season, felt more like a character-driven drama and then you look over to you know your shoulder and you see a, a viral, which is what we call our um, vampire-like beating beans. But you look over and you see a viral, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm on a genre show. It's pretty rad. And that's kind of new for you, right? Because you haven't really done anything in the sci-fi realm. This is almost like a sci-fi horror, and like you said, character-driven drama. So what is it like for you to jump into this, as you say, an air quote genre? Well, I'm super excited because it'll be the first time that I can go do a comic con. Um, which I yeah. did uh, earlier this year. So I'm really excited about doing more Comic-Cons. You know, uh, that's basically what I saw when I read the script. I'm like, Comic-Con, here I come. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Now let's talk about Brad for a second, because when we first meet him in the first episode, he very much seems like a good soldier. So how would you describe him early on? Yeah, he is a good soldier. He, he's He's got a good core. A unfortunate event that he and his ex-wife experienced set him back and uh, set him back emotionally. We'll, we'll, through the course of the season, specifically episode seven, we will, we will see through a flashback what exactly happened between Brad and his wife, a tragic incident, and then um, his decisions and the path he takes uh, to get to the point where he is right now, where he feels that he needs to save this little girl. Now, obviously, Mark Paul, we know that things change for Brad a lot once Amy comes into the picture. Picture now, other than you know just wanting to protect this young girl, do you feel like him being kept in the dark about what's going on with Project Noah was kind of part of the reason that he made the decision that he did? Well, I always played it as Brad. Brad's a, a smart guy, and whether the, the question is whether or not he knew exactly what was going on. I don't think to the extreme, but he's watching eleven inmates that he brings in never coming out and never hearing from them and there's a line that he i think he says in the pilot sort of along the lines of uh i I don't ask brad's a pretty smart guy i think he knows a little but i don't think he knows to the extent of of what the experiments have created um these these sort of viral beings but um you know he's got to know that he's whatever it is it can't be good Absolutely not. And I know that he has a history with one of the other characters from Project Noah on the show, Clark, and it seems like, you know, at least I got the vibe early on that they were tight at some point. Are we going to get to explore their relationship a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Specifically in, in, in Seven, when we, when we flash back to Brad's uh, backstory, they do have a long history. They served together. Uh, they were FBI agents together. Clark Richards was the sole reason that Brad is working for Project Noah now. Um, he gave him an opportunity when Brad, I don't, again, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a, 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 an incident that happens that, that Clark Richards gives Brad a second chance. Talking to Mark Paul Gosler from The Passage on Fox, which of course is going to be premiering on Monday, January the 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Now, Mark Paul, the series is based on the tril- trilogy of novels written by Justin Cornyn. Now, how would you describe the balance the show has in being true to the novel and also changing th- some things to tell the story for TV as well? I think we've 
stayed pretty true to the books. I've read all three. I'm a huge fan of the books. So when I signed on to take on this role, I thought the only way that we can make a successful show, and it shows how much I know, is, but, is that we have to stay completely word for word with, with the books because the books, in my opinion, are masterpieces. What Liz Heldens, our showrunner, has done, the creator of our show, what she has done with J- Justin Cronin's books is she has taken his framework but taken information and backstories that we learn in book two of his and book three of his and inserted it into the story we are telling, which is the first season could be looked at as the first quarter of the first book. So my relationship specifically with with Clark, for instance, she has created that on top of what Justin wrote you know, we we have to sort of fill in holes of, of why these characters are doing some of the things they do. I think as a fan of the book that you also be a fan of the of the show, we're just adding more to the characters. We're not changing the characters. I, I think the only changes we did is we made one of the characters uh, from male to female, and it works. Uh, trust me, like, I, I, fans of the book will, will appreciate what we've done because it'll open up a... Uh, another side of that character as well as the character that they come in contact with. I'm trying not to give too much away, but I think we stay pretty close to the books and I'm, I'm happy with, with where, where we've gone with it. Well, being such a fan of the books, when you, when you first went to, you know, try out for the show, did you always feel like you were Brad or was there another character that jumped out at you? It was like, man, it would have been fun to play that character too. No, I, I sort of knew that, they were interested in me to play Brad. So when I read the script, I read it, and I, I, you know, Brad came on the second page or whatever, and I, I just sort of attached myself to that character. I really liked the Richards character, the one played by Vincent Piazza. If, if I got an opportunity to play one or the other, I would, I would definitely pick Brad, but my other choice would be uh, to play Richards, to play the villain. Now, you're doing a great job not giving too much away, and I certainly don't want to do that either. But one of my favorite <laughs> moments in the pilot actually happens at a carnival. So what I'm going to ask you, Mark Paul, is have you ever won anything at a carnival? And if you have, what was it and what were you playing? Uh, yeah, I have four kids. So we do carnivals, we do fairs, we uh, you know, we, we go to Disneyland, we do all that stuff. So I, I definitely have to have my carnival game, my carny game on. I think we were in Atlanta. Uh, that's where we were filming the show. And there's a there's like a sort of a, a, a carnival on top of this building in, in Atlanta. I took the, the little ones there. I think the last thing we played was skee ball and we won this like little green uh, furry snake. Nice, nice. So you, your, your carny game is on point. That's good, especially when you got four kids. You got to make sure you're on point <laughs> you with have that. To be. Yeah, you have to be, or you you just slip them a few dollars uh, to 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 just give you uh, give you stuffed animal. There you go, there you go. Cheat the system a little bit. The kids will never notice. And yeah, just as long as never. you get the prize. <laughs> now, when we first get to see the participants of Project Nowhere, I mean, they're definitely creepy. So, is there any one of those characters that sort of creeps you out more than the others? No, they're pretty creepy. I mean, I I it, it was a few episodes before. I come into contact with a viral, and the actor who played the viral did an amazing job. And I remember just feeling a little creeped out the rest of the day. It's just the, the whole vibe of it, the energy coming off these actors that are playing those characters, they get really into it. They're in these prosthetics. A lot of, most of our stuff, 
after the pilot we did it was all physical none of it was really cg in terms of how we you know create the virals looks so they're walking around in the in this in this sort of makeup uh for, for the duration of the day, which takes about four hours to put on and about an hour and a half to take off. Um, so you're eating lunch with them and they have like, you know, blood stains all running down their mouth. Nice. And they've got these eerie contacts in and the only thing they take off in between takes is their, their, their teeth. Yeah. They're, they're, they're gnarly looking. And then they try to have a conversation with you. You're like, dude, I, I, I like, like you gotta, I, I can't have this talk with you right now. You're, you're, you look like a viral. So. <laughs> a lot of light meals on the set of The Passage, I take it then. <laughs> I would just eat my trailer. I'm like, I'm, I can't sit here. There you I, go. I, I, I gotta go. There you go. I need to eat by myself now. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> now, I feel like I have to ask you this question, Mark Paul, because I think it's one of the biggest questions of the show. Now, if there was a chance to cure all disease, but there was also a chance to wipe out the entire, that it would wipe out the entire human race, is it worth the risk? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it... it, it if you put it like that, I would say no. If if there's a disease that's going to wipe out mankind, as we know, then, yeah, I guess you take the chance to try to find the cure, even if that cure, you know, would have the same outcome. But if, if, if there's a, uh, yeah, it's a tough one, man. I say go for it because, you know, you have a, you can make a show out of it. And it's going to be a great show, too. The Passage premieres Monday, January the 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Make sure you're catching it out live and watching it again on the Fox app and Fox.com as well. It's Mark Paul Gossler. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Hey, James. Thanks for the time, Mark. So if you were on the fence about The Passage from Fox after hearing what Mark Paul Gossler had to say, you've got to be all in at this point, right? Not only is his Carney game on point, which is very, very important, but... I mean, if you're a fan of the books, it looks like there's going to be a pretty true adaptation, right? That's just one of the reasons that you're going to want to watch The Passage when it premieres on Fox Monday, January the 14th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Because I got to tell you, it's creepy. It's good. And my spoiler-filled review of that first episode is going to be coming next week. But for now, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at Fox and Mark Paul Gosser for letting me talk about the passage this week. If you want to find out more about our show, you can always go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. Please follow us on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Instagram and Twitter, and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.